Uh, if you haven't done so by way of seeing on your screen where we were headed, take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 15, and, and we're going to continue just kind of marching towards the cross and marching towards the resurrection of Jesus by each week. Uh, we started a couple weeks ago in John 13 by each week examining a statement of Jesus, some aspect of his final words to his disciples between uh, the upper room discourse beginning in John chapter 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet and then exposed to them the reality that Judas Iscariot was the one who would betray them. And now what we're going to see today is they've begun to make their way out of the upper room. And so our conversation this morning is, is going to center around this reality of abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in us. And so we're going to talk about some of the realities of that. And what's amazing is, and, and I don't know if you've encountered this, if you thought this much as, as, as you've had the privilege of reading the Word of God, but just the way that the Word of God is communicated to us in pictures, it makes it very easy to relate to and to understand. And some pictures are easier than others. But today I would submit to you that this is a, a, a very clear picture when we see this reality of a vine and of a vineyard and of a master of the vineyard, the vine dresser. And this morning as Jesus, as we're going to see, is teaching his disciples, he's drawing off of a number of Old Testament passages that speak to Israel as the vineyard of the Lord. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 17, for example. Uh, Jeremiah 2, 21, and we're going to look at some of them with a little more uh, intention in just a moment. But among the Old Testament pictures of a vineyard, and it referring to the people of God, there is perhaps no more vivid picture of the vineyard being the people of God, Israel, in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And it's here that we see very clearly that this vineyard is a reference to Israel, the chosen nation of God. But it's also very clear in Isaiah chapter 5 that Israel in her sin was unfaithful to the task that God had given to her to bring glory to God before all the nations. Israel was chosen by God to be set apart by God for God's glory. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Israel struggled to remain faithful to bringing God glory through the things that he had commanded to them and called them to. And so God judged Israel for her unfaithfulness and for her lack of fruitfulness by sending the Assyrian army to conquer her and haul the city's inhabitants into captivity. Now, that's not what I want to focus upon this morning. I want to focus a little bit more on the reality that Israel being hauled off into captivity would not be the end of her story. I think we can, in some ways, just in light of current events in our world, imagine we can see and, and begin to understand as much as we can from the other side of the world the devastation that war brings and the effect that it's having on the people. And what we see in the Old Testament is God's people, he had called them to himself, he had brought them out of Egypt, he'd done all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders, uh, separating them to himself for his glory, and he'd given them all of these uh, statutes and commands, this is how you live, and this is how you bring glory to my name, and, and this is how you're different from the nations that are amongst you. 
In other words, what happens is when those who are called to God, in our case, Christ in the new covenant, when we're called to Christ, we live our lives in such a way that it's different than those who do not. Whereby those who do not live for the glory of Christ see something different in us. And Israel failed in this reality of living for the glory of God, and they were judged for it. But as we've said, this is not the end of the story. Other Old Testament passages, some of which we've referenced, point to the fruitful one of whom God would send once and for all, who would be fruitful, who would carry out the task as expected and called to by God. And we read in Psalm 80, I referenced that already, but I referenced uh, up through verse 17. But in verse 17 and 18, we read this. The psalmist is writing and he says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And Isaiah 27, beginning in verse 2, we read, in that day a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle? I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. These Old Testament passages... They point to a Messiah. They point to a man. They point to God himself, Jesus Christ, and his coming kingdom that is once and for all. Israel failed, but Jesus Christ will not. And this is where we pick up our conversation between Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 15. And so I'm actually going to read the first 17 verses, so it's a little bit lengthier of passage. But I want, to read, I want to read those 17 verses in their entirety, and then I want to make some observations of it together. So again, remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is the night that Jesus will be betrayed, that it will be sold into the hands of Roman guards by Judas Iscariot, and he's preparing his disciples for that very moment. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful for the privilege of possessing your holy word. I am so thankful, God, that in that word we find realities such as who you are. God, who we are and what your heart for us is. And, and, and God, we're, we're thankful today that we find in your word um, what it looks like to walk in obedience to you. We, we find in your word, God, even as, as, as Christ said here to his disciples, you know, he came and he, and he came as the revelation of your word and as the revelation of you. Why? That we might have joy and that joy may be full. Our joy may be full. And so God, help us to see this morning that we have no claim to joy if we don't abide in Jesus. There's tremendous significance in what has been preserved for us and handed down today. The exhortation to abide in Jesus as Jesus abides in us. Father, I pray today for ears to hear. I pray for eyes to see. God, I pray that today our hearts would be soft. God, that they would be receptive that we would see your word and that we would see your words for what they are, life-giving and life-sustaining. Father, help us today to look vertically and to fix our eyes upon Jesus. He is the vine and we are the branches. And apart from the vine, we can do nothing. We must abide in him. Father, help us today to grow in our understanding of what it means to abide in Jesus. And God, may, as we see in this passage, may you be glorified by our fruitfulness. Because it is the fruitfulness, first and foremost, of the vine, Jesus, and now the branches, us, that brings you glory. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to this end and that you would indeed be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we prepare to observe this particular portion of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, I want to jump back to the last verse of chapter 14. And Jesus says to his disciples, as he's talking about them doing what he has commanded them, he says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So what we see is that Jesus and the disciples have now vacated the upper room. They were together in the upper room as Jesus was uh, washing their feet, as they were partaking of the Lord's Supper together, as he instituted this new covenant with them. But now Jesus has said, let us go from here. Jesus and his disciples are actually walking to the very place where Jesus will be arrested and the disciples will scatter. The coming departure that, his, that, that Jesus has been teaching them is at hand. It's about to take place. They're literally marching with Jesus to his death as they rise from the upper room and they leave. Now, you guys know I like stupid humor. And a lot of stuff that's dumb makes me laugh. And one of the things, one of the, I believe one of the greatest movies that has ever been made, 
that my wife even likes it. No, she don't. But um, is Nacho Libre. And if you've seen Nacho Libre, maybe you'll understand the picture that I'm getting ready to share with you because this is almost what I see in my mind when I read, rise, let us go from here, and then Jesus and his disciples are marching to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's this scene in Nacho Libre. And again, the premise of the movie is there's uh, Jack Black plays a guy who works in a monastery and he cares for orphans. And his responsibility in caring for the orphans is to cook. And there's a scene in the movie where they're walking through the streets and, and so you got Jack Black in the, in the front, and he's in his little friar robe, and he's walking, and, and there's about eight or ten little kids that live in the orphanage walking behind him. And it's really interesting because ultimately what he's telling them means nothing. It's completely irrelevant. It's just maybe a fun fact for the day. But you can see the kids are hanging on every word that Nacho Libre is telling them. That's his wrestling name. His name in the movie is Ignacio. But Ignacio is walking, and the kids are walking behind him. And when the scene cuts on, he says, uh, there is a squirrel nest in the tree. And the kids are like, oh. And then they walk by a corn stand, and he says, here's where I get the corn, best in the city. It's delicious. And the kids are like, oh. And they keep walking, and, and, G- and, and Jesus, <laughs> wrong illustration. And Ignacio says, he looks over back to his left, and he says, this over there is where I get the chips. It's a secret place. And the kids are saying things. Oh. And now while, he te- while he's telling them this, you can hear this lady cackling. She, you never see her. She's off the screen cackling. And so he says, over here is where we get the chips, a secret place. And then he turns and he says, and that is a crazy lady. And the kids just keep walking, right? But the kids are hanging on every word. And there's one little boy in particular who he has a couple lines in the movie. And he is just enamored with what Ignacio was telling them. Now, I have to imagine that Jesus walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane was more intentional, okay? Jesus didn't do anything of no substance and of no value. Everything that Jesus did was intentional and for a purpose. But with every fiber of my being, I have to imagine that as he walked, after telling them that he was going to be betrayed, after pointing out the one who was to betray him, after instituting the new covenant, after calling them to love one another following his example, that as they walked and he continued to talk, they hung onto every word that he said. And again, he's teaching and he's reminding them further of the reality that he's leaving. His physical presence will no longer be with them. And therefore, because that physical presence is not going to be with them, they must remain or they must abide in what it is that God is going to give to them. And we saw last week, what is that? It's the helper, the Holy Spirit. This is how they were to abide in Jesus. And I want you to understand this morning, abiding is a significant portion of the Christian life. And so I just want to start by talking about what does it mean to abide? When Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, then we must understand what does it mean to abide? Well, it's very simple, really. To abide is to remain. So Jesus is calling his disciples to remain in him. And that is to say, to remain in fellowship with him, to remain in step with him, following his commandments, being obedient to the things that he has revealed to them. 
And it's important that we understand that abiding in Jesus is the expectation that Jesus has for those who identify with him. And so for Jesus to tell his disciples that he is the true vine and his father is the vine dresser, this is going to carry great significance. Because as the disciples and Jesus continued their march toward the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is continuing to point to the reality, not only of who he is, but the significance of what that is. And by referring to himself as the true vine, he's drawing off of what we've already acknowledged, what we've already seen, that he was the one whom the Old Testament pointed ahead to. He was the one who would come and he would be the perfect, fruitful vine that Israel was not. He would come and he would faithfully fulfill every task that the Father had to him. Namely, the task of willingly laying down his life. Jesus says, no no love is greater than this. Than what? That a man would lay down his life for his friends. And so not only is Jesus claiming to be the true vine, but in claiming to be the true vine, he's also claiming exclusivity to producing the fruit that the Father expects. There is not more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to glorifying the Father. Expressions like, all roads lead to Rome... Well, on the earth, all roads might lead you to Rome, but in terms of heaven and a right standing before the Father, that's not true. We are not all just existing in this life and figuring it out and going our own ways, and eventually we're all going to wind up in the same place. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. And so as we saw last week in John chapter 14, what did Jesus say? One of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament, probably in all of scripture. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus is speaking with exclusivity that's very specific and exclusive. Isn't it great when you define a word with the word? But what Jesus was communicating to his disciples in the upper room before they departed was, nobody is getting to the Father without me. You cannot get to the Father without me. You cannot get to the Father without believing that I am also the truth. I'm not just the way. I am the way, but I'm also the truth. And that's to testify to the reality of who he is. That everything that he says is true. And everything that he does is true. So when he says, I am the only way, it's the truth. And so Jesus says, if I'm going to be the only way, it's exclusive, then you must abide in me. And he's going to flesh this out, why that's significant. Jesus calls the disciples... To abide in him. Verse 4, let's look at it again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Listen, Pastor Aaron in discipleship this morning, the whole point that, that was made this morning in our 9 a.m. discipleship class was that the purpose of the Christian life is fruitfulness. The purpose is to bear fruit to the glory of the Father. That's the whole point of the Christian life. And Jesus says here, if you don't abide in me, you can't produce fruit. To abide in Jesus 
is vital. There is no way around living the Christian life apart from abiding in Jesus. One of the quotes that Pastor Aaron shared with us this morning from um, Robert Coleman was, uh, and i got to paraphrase this, but it was in reference to what Robert Coleman called a barren Christian. And you know what Robert Coleman said about a barren Christian? It's a contradiction. There is no such thing. That is to say, there is no such thing as somebody who is abiding in Jesus, walking with him, and not bearing fruit. It's not possible. It's not practical. It's not possible. It it can't be. And so Jesus exhorts the disciples to abide in him because without abiding in him, they can do nothing. But as they abide in him, that is to say, again, as they remain in him, the Father is glorified. So what does it mean to abide? It means to remain with Jesus. And then biblically, uh, to abide in Jesus is to do so to the glory of the Father. But I want you to understand, I'm a firm believer that I know in my life, and maybe many of you are this way or two, just knowing stuff is not sufficient. Just knowing information or or claiming to have knowledge is not sufficient, right? Um, I like to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I like to have a motivation. So what I love, again, about the Word of God is, is Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Abide in me. Because without, without me, you can't do anything. You cannot produce fruit without abiding in me. That leads us to our second question. Why is it necessary to abide? And on the surface level, it's necessary because without Jesus, you can't do anything. But there's great ramifications. There's great significance for all of the things that professing believers in Jesus do and do not do. In every, everything that we do the ramifications fall into one of two categories. They're either positive or they're negative. Right? You've heard me say before, I'll remind you again, neutrality is a myth. When we do things in our lives, it's not for the purpose of remaining in the middle. Every action and inaction is a decision, and ultimately it's either positive or negative. There's no such thing as remaining neutral. And I want to talk first about the negative consequences of failing to abide in Christ. And we ask, why is it necessary to abide in Christ? Well, because there's consequences if we do, and there's consequences if we don't. And I want to start with the consequences if we don't. As we've already alluded to in verse 5, Jesus makes clear, apart from him you can do nothing. Now, that's not to say that you literally physically are stuck in a a vegetative state and can do nothing. Ultimately, what Jesus is talking about here is fruitfulness. And so what Jesus is communicating when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, is he's saying, you cannot produce fruit to the Father's glory without me. You can do nothing, is what Jesus tells his disciples. So that's a a negative consequence of failing to abide. Again, Jesus is teaching his disciples all through this process, and he's commissioning them to do what? To carry on the mission that he has started in his three-year earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion. Jesus always knew what awaited him. 
He always knew that ultimately his life was about dying so that it could be raised up again. And so Jesus, throughout this preparation to die for the glory of the Father, is preparing men to take up the mantle of glorifying the Father when he departs and the Holy Spirit comes. Again, Jesus did nothing without intention or without purpose. And he's teaching his disciples so that they would continue the mission that he has started. And, and Jesus is telling the disciples, if you don't abide in me, you cannot carry out the task. And you know what the context of our passage would tell us um, the task is primarily? Making disciples. When I, when I come across that this week, in, in, in my study, I was just kind of awestruck by that. We've ha- we're having so many conversations now about uh, making disciples and what it looks like to be making disciples and what disciples are. And so then I'm, I'm working through this passage that if you're familiar with the Word of God, you're probably vaguely familiar with, with John chapter 15 and, and you know about the bearing of fruit for those who profess faith in Jesus and you abide in Him so that you can bear fruit. And then it's Jesus' teaching, the context of our passage, and we're going to look at this in just a second, is namely that the the fruit believers are called to is the fruit of making disciples. Remember, a disciple is somebody who identifies with someone and or their teaching. And, and to identify is to follow in the footsteps of and reproduce, right? And the message is clear. You can't make disciples if you don't abide in Jesus. In verse 2, Jesus says, there is no fruit if we don't abide in Jesus. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, Jesus says that the branches that bear no fruit, they're ultimately gathered and they're burned. I believe that you can relate when I say that this is a picture that is very fitting for this time of year. Because what's everybody doing right now is it gets a little bit warmer outside and the sun is shining. What do we do? We go outside and we do what? We clean up all of the sticks and all of the branches that have broken and fallen out of our tree over the winter and they've started collecting on the ground and they're in the way when we need to mow. We prune back all of our landscaping, all of the stuff that was green last year and is now brown, not bearing any fruit. What do we do with it? We cut it off. We throw it in our dumpster, but oftentimes, folks burn it. I'm still cleaning up leaves. I don't have any leaves in my front yard, and I've been cleaning up leaves since August. I don't, I don't get it. But you clean those leaves up, and what do you do with them? Well, they're not fruitful anymore. They're not serving any purpose. So because they're not serving a purpose, you discard them. And so you've got some branches that clearly fall and are dead and, are, and have died. You have other branches that maybe are still attached, but they're not fruitful. They're disposed of. And I, and, and I would submit to you this morning that that picture of springtime foliage that is discarded of is a very significant picture. And, and this morning, Pastor Aaron was even in his discipleship time. We looked at a number of passages, and one of them was the, the parable of the four soils. And, and, um, and so you got the sower, you know, that sows the seeds. And, 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 and there's an element of that same kind of idea here. Because a lot of conversation has been given to, well, who are the branches that are disposed of? Who, who are the branches that are cut off, 
because they're not bearing fruit, or that are gathered up because they've already fallen off and that ultimately are thrown in the fire. I believe that those branches are people who profess faith in Jesus but have not bore fruit. Similar to that of Judas, who probably just a couple hours before this conversation between Jesus and the disciples had been notified, the gig is up, bro. I know that you are set to betray me. And up until that point, everybody thought Judas was one of the what? Twelve. He was in step with Jesus. He went where Jesus went. He listened to what Jesus taught. He did the things Jesus said. But as time bore on, what did we find out? Judas wasn't what he, was not who he said he was at all. And Judas, he did not bear fruit that glorified the Father. And similar to the branches that we pick up and we cut off our trees, we gather them and we throw them into the fire. And you know, that's the whole, the whole reality here of what Jesus is talking about is if you're going to be a fruitful branch... That is to say, if you're going to claim that you're following Jesus and then you're going to bear fruit to the glory of the Father, you must abide in him. If you don't, if you don't produce fruit to the glory of the Father, the word of God says you are cut off and you are thrown out. Now, I can't tell you what that means and what that looks like, right? Here's what I know. Kind of like, again, in discipleship class, Pastor Aaron and I have laughed a number of times how much these two things have overlapped because it was not intentional and we did not plan it. But in Luke chapter 13, looking at the barren fig tree in the vineyard, look, or the, 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 the owner of the vineyard, he looks at this fig tree and says, three years, it's not produced any fruit. Cut it down and get rid of it. And the guy, the, the, the vine dresser who's tending it says, one more year. Let me till the ground, let me spread manure, give it one more year. If there's, no, if there's no fruit, we'll cut it down and get rid of it. We'll use the ground for something else. What's the point? God is patient. But I don't know where his patience ends. And neither do you. God is long-suffering. But the long-suffering nature of God is never a reason to say, I will be an unfruitful, professing believer in Jesus. The only right perspective of the Christian life is to say, how do I make fruit in keeping with the glory of the Father? And we abide in Jesus so that that is possible. There's also positive ramifications. And when we abide in Jesus, there are good things that come from that. Again, notice verse 2. So he says, any, any, any branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it might bear more fruit. I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why? For the purpose of growth. For the purpose of fruitfulness. The positive, verse 4. The only way to bear fruit is to abide. Because the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Now, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe some of you have seen this. I never have. Have you ever picked up a stick from your yard that's been in the yard since last fall over winter and there's, there's fruitfulness to it? There's flowers growing on it or there's fruit growing on it? I've never seen this. I'm not going to say that there's, you know, I, I, look, I've been driving and seeing grass growing out of the side of mountains, okay? I don't know how God does what he does. But again, the point is, is very clear. The branch that's not abiding in the vine is not producing fruit. 
But if we do abide, the positive is what? It's that we do bear fruit. Verse 8, when abiding in Christ is taking place, much fruit is manifested and the Father is glorified. And this, as we've alluded to, is the crux of the matter at hand. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The only way anybody will will ever know if you are a disciple of Jesus is by the fruit you bear. Doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. It's about the fruit that you bear. Judas said he was a disciple. Jesus says, when you bear much fruit, my Father is glorified. And by bearing fruit to my Father's glory, you prove to be my disciple. In verse 11, the the, the positives of abiding. Jesus says that his desire for his disciples is that his joy would be in them and that it would be full. This only happens when you abide in Christ. Remember, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Well, things are going my way, or this is good, or this is better, so I'm happy. Joy is a disposition, okay, that is is cultivated by who Jesus is and by what Jesus has done, regardless of the circumstances in your life. And Jesus says, no matter what's going on in your world, if you abide in me, you have my joy, and your joy can be full. In verse 15, Jesus calls those who abide in him and bear fruit friends. Could you imagine being there in that conversation? Could you imagine walking on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and you've just seen the events that unfolded in the upper room and and Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends and you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus literally just told the disciples moments ago, hours ago, that he was going to be be, uh, sold into the hands of Roman soldiers, that the religious leaders would falsely accuse him, that his time was at hand, and that he was going to die. And then he tells them the greatest manifestation of love from one person to another would be that they would die for somebody calling them friend. And you are my friends, is what he says. He literally says, I'm going to die for you. Verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples how it is that they love one another by telling them that they will love one another. You must abide in Jesus if you are to love one another. That was our command a couple weeks back. Love one another as I have loved you. But you will not love one another if we are not abiding in Jesus. Now I want to jump back up to verse 16. As Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is where we learn that the the reality of fruitfulness primarily, primarily is making disciples to the glory of the Father. You see, the word that we see in the ESV in verse 16, appointed, is usually used to describe someone who is appointed or who has been given a particular task or ministry. And Jesus very clearly says to the disciples that he has appointed them to go and bear much fruit. 
Now, is this the general fruit of a believer's life? You know, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date girls that do. Yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, you know what one of the things that plagues me the most in the church today? I'm going to use a big fancy word, or a few words, because I like to uh, use this fra- phrase. And if you could latch on to this phrase, and you could, you, could, you could know what this phrase means, and then you could apply it to your life, I think it would absolutely transform the body of Jesus Christ. But there's a phrase, and I'm going to explain it for you in a minute, called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's the idea that we do certain things or we don't do certain things morally because that's how we please God. That's what's pleasing to God. And furthermore, that's how we know that we're in good step with God. In other words, we find our confidence and our comfort not in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but in our external actions. You see, that's why this conversation about bearing fruit is an important conversation. Because oftentimes in the church, we exchange bearing fruit, the context of our passage, the fruit that glorifies the Father is making disciples. We forsake the making disciples, the the, the bearing of the fruit that glorifies the Father for moralistic therapeutic deism. I did this, I didn't do this, I did this, I didn't do this. And because of those things, God is pleased with me. And this is a dangerous place to be. I'm convinced that the best thing that moralistic therapeutic deism can do is divide people. Because then we look down our nose and we say, well, I don't do this, but you do this. Shame on you. I do this and you don't do this. Shame on you. The Word of God is very clear. That the branches are to bear much fruit to the glory of the Father. This is where and how the Father is pleased. Now listen, I obviously, I guess I have to say this caveat. If you've been here very long, you know that I'm not advocating for doing whatever you want. Because that's contradictory to Scripture, right? I'm absolutely not saying what we live like heathens and then say, well, but I believe in Jesus. No, that would be the antithesis of this passage, Right? But we must be sure that our confidence is not resting in what we do or what we don't do. If your assurance and salvation in Christ is wrapped up in what you do or what you don't do, you're probably not saved. Because your salvation isn't about you at all. Your salvation is about Jesus And the fact that the greatest manifestation of love is that someone would lay down his life for someone else. And it's interesting that the call of the gospel to produce fruit, to make disciples, requires the sacrificing of ourselves for others. And so in the Bible, in this passage, in John 15, Jesus is talking about abiding and bearing much fruit. It's being disciples who are abiding in Jesus, not in what we do or don't do, but we're abiding in Jesus and making disciples. There's no denying that abiding in Christ is necessary for the professing believer. We have to abide in Christ. And so now we know what it means to abide, and now we know why we need to abide. But what does all this this talk of abiding and the necessity of abiding mean to the one who understands that abiding is necessary. You may be hearing, you say, okay, I, I'm trekking with you, pastor. 
Jesus said, man, you got to abide in me. You got to remain in me. And you got to bear fruit to the glory of my Father through me. And that's why it's necessary. It's necessary because if we don't bear fruit, the Father cuts us off and we're thrown into the fire. But sometimes we kind of get stuck there. Well, how do we, how do we abide? We're hearing the call to abide in Jesus as he tells his disciples, but how is it that we today can abide in Jesus? I just want to give you three things. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are three things that I think are absolutely tantamount to abiding in Christ. I believe that understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has called us to ought to spurn the professing follower of Jesus to constantly, regularly assess their own lives to see that they are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You see, at the close of his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul calls the believers in Corinth to examine themselves. Why? To be sure that they're abiding in Jesus. Corinth was a mess. And there was so much going on in Corinth. And, and, And one of the things that was going on in Corinth that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians was people saying, well... I'm a, I'm a disciple of Paul. I'm a disciple of Apollos. I'm a disciple of XYZ and ABC. And Paul says, what? No. If you're a disciple, you're a disciple of Jesus. That's why Paul says stuff like, follow me as I follow Christ. And so Paul's exhortation here is, is right in line with a number of things that he's taught the Corinthians to say, be sure that Christ is in you. Because you cannot abide in Christ and he in you if you are not in Christ. So we must readily examine ourselves to be sure that we are in step with Christ. Next question. Well, how do you do that, Pastor? What's the barometer? What's the gauge of whether or not we're in step with Christ? Colossians 3.16, also the Apostle Paul says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The word of God is the means whereby we examine ourselves to see that we be in the faith. When you look into the word of God, see, and that's the irony, right? Like, if you neglect the word of God, you can't examine yourself. You, you cannot be sure if you're in the faith of Christ if you don't weigh it against what Christ has given you to weigh it against. So it's the word of God. Jesus made clear that believers are to abide in him and he abides in us. How? Through the presence of the Holy Spirit and through the presence of his word. Now I want you to hear me when I say this because Maybe this is the most important thing to be said today. The word of God is the barometer, nothing else. The word of God is the barometer whereby we examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. And so Paul is right on. 
He's right on in Colossians 3 when he calls believers to let the word dwell richly in them. To dwell, to reside. You think of take up residence. That's a vivid picture again, isn't it? Uh, everybody knows, I, I'm, I'm assuming everybody in this room at some point in their lives has moved. And you move into a home or you move into this place where you're going to live and you take your stuff with you and you set up your camp and you dwell there. And Paul says, let the word of God dwell in you. Because from it comes wisdom. And in that wisdom, believers are to sing and praise with thankfulness to God. And as we examine ourselves through the barometer that is the word of God, it calls us or it leads us to one final reality of abiding. It calls us to pursue Jesus. You want to abide in Jesus, you must pursue Jesus. You see, obedience to Christ is not a stationary situation. And I'm not, like, this isn't my idea. That's what Jesus himself said prior to his crucifixion. In Luke chapter 9, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, he's extended the invitation, Follow me. And then he says, If you are to follow me, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and then you can follow. For the professing believer in Jesus, without a constant, regular, renewed pursuit of Jesus, you cannot abide in Christ. To abide in Christ, we must be following Christ. And what does it look like to, to follow Jesus? It looks like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, which is what? It's our identity with Christ. Okay, it's the cross is where we identify with our salvation. We understand that the baptism is part of that as well, but we can't really carry around tanks of water. Jesus says, take up your cross. We're identifying with him and then follow him. And leading up to today, we've seen Jesus' command to love one another. We've seen the reality that if we love him because of the presence of his word and his spirit, we will keep his commandments and so Jesus reminds his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is verse 12 and 13 of 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus is reiterating. He's doubling down on the things that he's already been teaching. And he tells them, in line with what he's teaching, abide in me and me in you. Remain in Christ because as Jesus taught here, it's the only path to life and to joy. And so how do we remain in Jesus? By pursuing him, by knowing his word and examining ourselves in light of God's word. Jesus says, abide in me. And as we abide in him, He's promised to abide in us. Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you following Christ? Have you trusted Christ? 
Do you know what it means to have the forgiveness of sins? Not because you do this or you don't do this because you do this or you don't do this, but because the shed blood of the perfect, spotless Son of God redeems sinful man once and for all. Are you saved? Have you trusted Christ on that reality? And now you live your life out of, uh, of an overflow of love and gratitude and appreciation of understanding the truth that you were guilty before the, a holy God, the sovereign, creating, sustaining God of the universe. You were guilty before. You were not born into this world. Everything is hunky-dory. You were not born into this world, and when you do enough bad, now you're an enemy of God. No, the word of God is very clear. We are born into this world in sin, guilty before God. And the only hope we have of being declared innocent or righteous instead of guilty is Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do in terms of whether or not you're declared right. But what you do and what you don't do, they do go a long way towards bearing fruit as the Father has called us to. Are you resting in Jesus today that you might abide in him? Are you resting in anything else? Because Jesus was very clear this morning. He is the only way. He is the truth. And the only chance you have of bearing fruit to the glory of the Father is by resting or remaining, abiding in Jesus. Are you abiding in Christ this morning? Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to know you because of your son Jesus. What a privilege it is to even pause and, and, and carry out an action that we know as prayer, whereby we address you as Father. It's such an intimate picture and reality of a relationship that exists between two parties. Jesus tells his disciples here that they are his friends. There's great intimacy there. There's relationship there. But God, because of Jesus, we get to call you Father, and you care for us, and you love us, and you provide for us. And God, we see your word teach very clearly that for those who are in Christ, who are pursuing Jesus, who are resting in his word and using it as the barometer or the gauge whereby we understand whether or not we are or are not walking in step, examining ourselves, that God in doing all of these things, you're glorified. So help us today, God, to be about your glory. Jesus was clear to his disciples. When you abide in him, when they abide in him, they bear much fruit, and in bearing much fruit, the Father is glorified. Work in our hearts today, God. Work in our lives that we might be about your glory. Help us today, Father, to abide in Jesus so that we can realize, that we can experience, as Jesus himself has said here, is that we abide in him and he abides in us. Thank you today, God. Thank you for the, the privilege of having your presence with us always in the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for giving us your heart in the words that we call Scripture. Thank you, God, that we can know you. Thank you, God, that we can draw near to you 
that we can be in fellowship with you because of your love toward us. Help us today as we prayed when we started to fix our eyes upon Jesus. May we look vertically for all of our hope, for all of our encouragement, and for all of our confidence. Be glorified in and through us today in Jesus' name.